Oh, good morning. Uh, uh, we're, uh, you're starting a series on uh, Isaiah 56 to 66. Uh, so let me pray as we uh, start looking at that. Father, thank you for your word, uh, particularly through the prophet Isaiah and all that he had to say to your people. Uh, Please help us to understand that word this morning and particularly its ultimate expression in the Lord Jesus Christ Uh, and help us uh, to be faithful to your covenant through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, When I was working in Ethiopia, one of the Somali believers I uh, worked with had the job of answering the questions of his fellow countrymen who were largely Muslim and had queries about the gospel. And sometimes they would ask questions like, if I became a Christian, uh, how do I pray? And what they meant by that is, do I now need to face Jerusalem instead of Mecca? Do I have to do similar ceremonial washings uh, to become clean before I approach God? Uh, To them it was about what rituals do I need to do uh, to seek and find God? And sometimes they misunderstood the Old Testament in this regard. Uh, Jews did have to attend religious festivals in Jerusalem each year three times and did pray with reference to Jerusalem being the place where Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, uh, revealed his presence, his covenant presence. But not just uh, Muslims misunderstand the function of these uh, rituals and Uh, ceremonies, the Jews themselves misunderstood the privilege of having Yahweh as their God and the function that these things had in their spiritual life. And Isaiah has a lot to say about this. So you're beginning a series on Isaiah 56 to 66 and the first thing we need to look at Uh, as is how this section of Isaiah relates to the rest of Isaiah. See, Isaiah has three distinct sections uh, related to a different period of time. So if if you look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, this is the time that Isaiah himself actually lived and uh, spoke. So if you looked at that verse, you would see his prophetic ministry occurred during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, which, for the sake of round numbers, was around 700 BC. And chapters 1 to 39 cover this period of time. During this time, the northern tribes of Israel had drifted a long way from their covenant relationship with Yahweh. And as uh, discipline or punishment, the Assyrians had come down and ended up destroying them. 
the southern kingdom, including the region of Judah and the city of Jerusalem, were also under threat from the Assyrians. And chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah are about Isaiah's role in bringing God's word to this situation, to warn Jerusalem that, see what's happened to the northern kingdom, turn back to your God. On the whole, they failed, though, to trust Yahweh. They turned to other gods and relied on other nations, but God let them continue on until eventually Babylon became the world's superpower, which is where chapter 39 ends. And, of course, we know that it would be Babylon that would end up taking the southern kingdom of Israel into exile for 70 years. Chapters 40 to 55 of Isaiah are set many decades into Isaiah's future and it describes the uh, or prophesies to the Israelites, the Jewish people, who are in Babylonian exile. God has given Isaiah insight to see what will happen and so he preaches a word concerning this exile to Babylon. So if you, for example, looked at chapter 40, verses 1 to 8 of Isaiah, you would see this. So first, verse 2 of chapter 40 says that Jerusalem's sins have been paid for. And then verses 3 to 5 go on to describe that God will bring the Jews back from Babylon to the promised land and this return is described as like a glorious new second exodus. Uh, Another journey through the wilderness to the place of God's promise to Abraham. And so we have to keep this in mind that the return from Babylon is, is something like a new exodus as the original exodus took Israel from enslavement in Egypt. However, throughout these chapters, Israel remained disillusioned and unbelieving in the way that Yahweh works and can't get too excited about going back to Jerusalem. So Israel are described in Isaiah 40 to 55 as a failed and poor servant. In fact, they're described as an unbelieving, blind and deaf servant. They just won't hear, they can't see what's going on and they don't believe uh, God's word that he will return them to the promised land. And what they have a particular gripe about is they don't like the way he's going to do it. The way he's going to do it is he's going to raise up a Persian king called Cyrus and lead them back to the promised land. And in fact, in in Isaiah 40 to 55, God calls this pagan king Cyrus his Messiah his shepherd. 
to bring his people home. But the people despise this plan and they remain unbelieving and unfaithful. And so what Isaiah does in these chapters, or what God does through Isaiah, is in the light of Israel being a failed, blind, deaf servant, he presents an ideal servant. An ideal servant who will actually do God's will and get the job done. And what this servant will do is be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. This servant will not quit until righteousness is established in the world. But then what we have in chapters 56 to 66 is a prophecy of Isaiah concerning the time when Israel would return to the land and they were still unbelieving and doubtful that Yahweh's purpose for his people and to redeem creation uh, would come about. So chapters 56 to 66 continue the themes of the rest of the book and come in the form of assurances that the kingship of Yahweh through his Messiah will be revealed, the city of God will be lifted up and even Gentiles uh, will come into it to find Yahweh and his salvation. So these chapters are a great encouragement for us as people living in a time when there is a lot of apathy, a lot of doubt that God's purposes will ever be finally accomplished, uh, to keep trusting Yahweh through his actions, his saving intent, and how we ought to live now in view of its certain fulfilment. So straight away, look at Isaiah 56 verse 1. We see that Isaiah says to the people, basically persevere, keep doing justice, keep uh, do righteousness, for soon salvation will come. And literally it goes on to say, my righteousness will be revealed. And he attaches this in verse 2 to keeping the Sabbath. Uh, which is also a very significant covenant requirement in, under the terms of the Mosaic law. See, the basic idea is don't disconnect doing justice and righteousness from the outward requirements of the covenant. There's no use keeping the Sabbath and being an arrogant, wicked person. True Sabbath-keeping under the Old Covenant was done in such a way as to show love for God and express anticipation of a future ultimate rest uh, for God's people, which is inseparably linked to righteousness. See, being righteous now 
is done in anticipation of its ultimate expression in the new heaven and new earth, which is described in 2 Peter as the home of righteousness. In fact, the end of verse 1 literally says that Yahweh's righteousness is coming or will be revealed. And this is what all believers are looking for, isn't it? When God rules in righteousness and his rule is no longer disputed or rejected. And so a righteous world is established. Uh, The New Living Translation helpfully translates the end of verse 1 like this. For I am coming soon to rescue you and to display my righteousness among you. And we know from chapters 40 to 55 that the ideal suffering servant uh, will be instrumental in this. So listen to what uh, Isaiah 53:11 says. It says, Out of the anguish of his soul... He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And this is connected to Sabbath keeping because keeping Sabbath was an opportunity to care for those around, to to rest from work, to set aside time to worship Yahweh their God. And here Isaiah connects this with keeping from evil. These are all connected by being fundamental to covenant relationship between God and his people. And in a way, this would be a reversal of what was happening a couple of hundred years prior when Isaiah wrote the Vineyard Song, which was read to us as well. So the Vineyard Song is about God saying to Israel, well, what else can I do? I've given you the conditions to thrive in the Promised Land Everything you need, put a hedge around you, fertilised the soil, watered you, but the only fruit you bear is wild grapes. The final verse of the vineyard song says this, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So this situation will be reversed. Now, to understand the ideas of verses 3 to 8, we need to think about the context again. Isaiah himself lived prior to the Babylonian exile, And he saw it coming. And he explained why it must happen in terms of 
Jerusalem being a failed representation of Yahweh's purpose to restore humanity. So Jerusalem, instead of being a place of righteousness, built on Yahweh's covenant kindness and grace, basically Isaiah says she's become a whore, a spiritual prostitute. So a big part of the return from exile was to establish a righteous Jerusalem that did represent Yahweh well, one that would attract the nations to its light. So verses 3 to 8, we see all this stuff about foreigners and eunuchs being able to be part of God's people. In Deuteronomy 23, various uh, people are restricted from the assembly of Yahweh, especially those involved in practices of allegiance to other gods. But what we see here is development in the plan of God to make Israel a blessing to all nations Eunuchs and foreigners, people that would generally be excluded to to full participation in the worship of God, who unite themselves to Yahweh by obeying the covenant, they will not be cut off. They will be fully included. So verse 4, notice the verbs that the action words, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. The action words keep and choose are written as habitual ongoing actions in which people are to persevere. So people who think they're unfit or unable to approach Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, can approach by keeping covenant. And Sabbath is really important idea in this situation because Israel, in conforming to the nations around them, were abandoning such covenant practices. They were bending to the pressure of conformity to the nations and their gods. They know they were no longer keeping what we would call Saturday for the worship of Yahweh and uh, loving him and his glory. But anyone who does this, who keeps Sabbath in this context, will show that they are part of his people. And this is also interestingly described here as gripping or grabbing hold of my covenant. Now the reason Sabbath keeping is emphasised is probably because in post-exile Judah the influence of the nations will drive out uh, such practices and so keeping Sabbath would be a particularly obvious sign of love for Yahweh and desire to grip hold of his covenant. It would distinguish clearly 
uh, those who choose what Yahweh delights in from those who don't. And every generation of Christian or believer has those sorts of things that emerge in their culture, don't they? Particular things where it distinguishes us from our culture and its unbelief. And in this case, Sabbath-keeping was a big thing in, in being able to do that. And the outcome for anyone, whatever standing in life, that does do these things, it's an extraordinary promise, isn't it? Verse 5. Part of the function and importance of family in ancient culture was to continue your name. It's like a living memorial to your existence. And eunuchs, who couldn't reproduce, were called here dry trees. That is, when they died, that was the end of their name. They were no more to be remembered on the earth. So some people in this position would build a memorial for their name because they'd have no descendants so that they could uh, be remembered in an ongoing way. But look what Yahweh gives and look how vastly superior it is, verse 5. God himself, for those who grasp hold of his covenant, will give them a name in his own house. Now, of course, this means more than they will be remembered. It means there's an ongoing life in the presence of Yahweh. If they would grip hold of his covenant, And just as the eunuch can be covenantally bound to Yahweh, so too the foreigner, verses 6 to 7. And they are to do similar to the eunuchs, to show love for Yahweh, keep the Sabbath, which would clearly identify them as those who wanted to be his servants. And verse 7 again is, in, is extraordinary. Foreigners... Gentiles, the unclean, will be brought into Yahweh's house. His holy place on his holy mountain. This is not extraordinary to us because we're used to it. There will be full acceptance in the way that Israel were fully accepted. The rebuilt Jerusalem temple, once they return from Babylonian exile, must become a house of prayer for all nations so that all people can come and seek his presence. And our verse 8 is important in this regard. It literally emphasises that God is gathering many people from many places, to be one gathered people. Humanity, in our sinfulness, uh, are represented in 
many ways by Israel themselves, we cause a lot of scattering, dividing, alienation and estrangement. This is what we're good at. Yahweh here is described though as the one who gathers and unites. He gathers in Israel that is not just racially Israel. He unites people as they join to seek his name and approach his presence and take hold of his covenant. And Isaiah says this in advance to an Israel that when they return to the land will struggle to see past the apparent failure of this return from Babylonian exile. See, when Israel returned, it didn't live up to these promises, did it? They still lived under the oppressive rule of foreigners. They still failed to keep Sabbath, keep covenant. They started intermarrying with foreigners and worshipping their gods. The return from exile is like a definition of the word anticlimax. It didn't bring about these sorts of things that Isaiah was looking to. And so we have to work out how do we understand that. And the gospel writers understand this with clarity. In fact, one of the main themes of Mark's gospel, in fact, some scholars would argue that it's built around this idea, is that the new exodus has arrived in the person of Christ. See, the physical return from Babylonian exile didn't live up to expectations. It wasn't enough to just rebuild the temple and walls of Jerusalem because Israel themselves were the same old Israel. This is why Mark quotes extensively in his Gospel from Isaiah chapter 40 onwards. So turn back to Mark 11, which we read before, and quickly look through, we'll quickly look through how Mark traces some of this idea as it relates to Isaiah 56. So Mark 11, back in verse 11, why did Israel, and why is it emphasised that he had 12 uh, disciples? Because Jesus is gathering a new Israel. Why does he curse the fig tree? Verses 13 to 14. It's not because he had a bad day and lost his temper. It's because he's shaped by Isaiah and things like the vineyard song where Israel failed to bear its proper fruit 
Israel, instead of uh, righteousness, was an outcry. Verses 15 to 17, Jesus drove out commerce from the temple. People were using the holy place of the worship of God for profit. And significantly, he quotes from Jeremiah 7 and Isaiah 56. Jeremiah 7 described pre-exile Jerusalem and its temple as a corrupt and hypocritical representation of Yahweh their God. Jesus is quoting this and saying to the Israel of his day, you are the same as those that went into exile. You're doing the same thing. And he also quotes Isaiah 56, which describes the ideal of the post-exile restored house of Yahweh, or temple, which is, should have been a house of prayer for all nations. But Israel turned it into a den of robbers. And verse 18, the response of Israel's leaders is to what? Repent humbly, but to want to destroy him who tells the truth about themselves, which the prophets have been saying for centuries. And they think, in fact, that they have successfully destroyed him a few days later on a Roman cross. Then verse 20, the fig tree is withered to its roots. The rebuilt Jerusalem temple of the returned exiles failed to achieve its intended purpose so it will be destroyed completely. Hence the fig tree withered to its roots and it was in 70 AD. What we have now is something far superior. The living temple. The one who is the temple who would be destroyed but was raised three days later. So we no longer pray towards the temple in Jerusalem and on the mount of Jerusalem, but in the powerful name of Jesus. The holy place where God enters and celebrates covenant relationship with his people is no longer a building, but a man. Jesus of Nazareth the suffering servant and greater David. See, what Mark is showing is that the new exodus will involve a radical solution to redeem God's people. See, the enemies of God's people ultimately aren't Babylon, Assyria, Rome... Kim Jong-un. Our ultimate enemies are sin and death. 
ultimate new exodus is brought about by the suffering servant as he dies the ultimate Passover death. If we want to escape God's judgment and belong to his unified people, we must find shelter or refuge in David's greater son. And so the church is the ultimate expression of Israel. Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, every nation united by the saving kingship of the one who is the holy place where God and humanity meet. And God's priority in this world is as it was in Isaiah 56, is to gather people under the rule of his glorious son, the true vine, the one who brings ultimate Sabbath rest. Let me um, pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word Uh, as we embark on this series in Isaiah 56 to 66. Help us understand the issues that Isaiah faced. Help us understand that our deepest need is uh, not to be free politically, but to be free from sin and death to be free from your anger against human wickedness, uh, to be free from the sin that enslaves us and is destructive. Help us to see how in Isaiah you've built this uh, picture of how a great new and ultimate new exodus uh, will come about. And help us to glory and grip onto the triumph of Jesus. And uh, so be part of your plan uh, to gather and unite people under the rule of your glorious son. And uh, we ask and pray these things in his name. Amen.